Hi, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Antarctic Report podcast. I'm Nicholas O'Flaherty, editor of the Antarctic Report, an online portal dedicated to all things about Antarctica. Each week I talk to an outstanding scientist or adventurer, a writer, an historian, environmentalist, policymaker, people who actually work down on the ice itself. In fact, anyone with a real connection to Antarctica and a compelling story to tell. Anthropogenic climate change. We've known about it for some time. Ironically, it was the search for the cause of ice ages in the past that led 19th century scientists to a realisation. The thinking had been that previous lower levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere had triggered the ice ages of old. In 1896, amidst his ice age research, Swedish chemist Svante Arrhenius calculated that human-caused CO2 emissions from the burning of fossil fuels were large enough to cause global warming. But many scientists at the time dismissed his theory. Later on in 1938, English engineer Guy Callender argued that the level of carbon dioxide was climbing, increasing global temperatures. And in 1956, Canadian physicist Gilbert Plass published a series of papers which made predictions about increases in CO2 and resultant increases in temperature. But the pivotal moment came in 1961 when US scientist Charles Keeling produced groundbreaking data that showed carbon dioxide levels were rising steadily in what became known as the Keeling Curve. Two years later, the National Science Foundation of the United States used Keeling's research in its warning of rapidly increasing amounts of heat-trapping gases. Since then, there have been numerous milestones in the science of climate change, too many to mention here, However, of particular significance was the establishment in 1988 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. It's a joint initiative of the United Nations and World Meteorological Organization. In 1990, the IPCC issued its first assessment report on climate change. It concluded, among other things, that it is highly likely that sea level has been rising over the past 100 years due to climate change. It also highlighted the fundamental gaps in our understanding of the Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets and how these impact sea level rise forecasts. In particular, the IPCC called for better research into measuring the mass balance of these ice sheets. What that means is calculating the balance between processes that add ice to the ice sheets versus processes that remove ice. It specifically recommended a polar orbiting satellite equipped with a radar altimeter that could be operated to measure the changing height of the ice sheets on a continuous basis. This would lead to accurate assessments of the changing volume of both the Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets, and therefore better forecasts for sea level rise. By the late 1990s, NASA was working on exactly such a satellite. It was called the Ice Cloud and Land Elevation Satellite, or ISAT. Launched in 2003, Over a seven-year period, ISAT provided multi-year elevation data needed to determine ice sheet mass balance for both Antarctica and Greenland. It also provided topography and vegetation data from around the world. In 2010, the ISAT satellite finally burnt up in a controlled re-entry. In anticipation of the ISAT mission coming to an end, NASA began development of a new satellite, ISAT-2. Scheduled for launch in 2018, 
ISAT-2 will carry a photon-counting laser altimeter that will allow scientists to measure the elevation of ice sheets, glaciers and sea ice in unprecedented detail. But what about that gap in time? The original ISAT satellite stopped collecting science data in 2009, and ISAT-2 won't be operational until sometime next year, 2018. How did NASA ensure that a continuous series of observations of the ice sheets was maintained without that satellite cover? This week on the Antarctic Report podcast, we speak to John Sontag. He's the mission scientist for NASA's Operation Icebridge. The aptly named Operation Icebridge is providing that valuable continuity of data to land and sea ice measurements from the first ISAT satellite through to the launch of ISAT-2 next year. Since 2009, Operation Icebridge has utilised a highly specialised fleet of research aircraft flying over both Greenland and Antarctica. It's the largest airborne survey of Earth's polar ice ever flown. John Sontag, welcome to the Antarctic Report. Thank you. So John, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your professional career? You seem to be scientist, engineer, meteorologist, navigator. Tell, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, that sounds like quite a grab bag of jobs, but it actually makes sense when uh, when you consider how Operation Icebridge works. Uh, my background is I'm, I'm trained as an engineer, uh, both in uh, undergraduate and graduate school. Uh, later on in graduate school, I went into earth science as well. So I suppose it's fair to say I'm uh, I'm something of both an engineer and a scientist. Uh, I definitely feel more like an engineer, but uh, NASA treats me more like a scientist, and I certainly do a fair amount of science work, but uh, I like having, having feet in both camps. I also work uh, as a meteorologist and a navigator. Uh, for Operation Icebridge uh, when we're in the field and do a fair number of other, of other odd jobs too. But that's fairly typical for, for field work. People have to do um, you know lots of different kinds of things. Sure. So, so you work for NASA, yeah? Yes. What, what division? And tell us a bit about that, the part of NASA that you work for. Uh, so I work for the Goddard Space Flight Center, which is in uh, in Maryland and near Washington D.C. Uh, it's the part of NASA that uh, primarily uh, works uh, works on a lot of Earth science types of types of research, uh, both from uh, from a, the vantage point of space from orbit and also from uh, a suborbital vantage point of aircraft. Do you want to tell us a bit about Operation Icebridge, please? Sure. So uh, Operation Icebridge has a has a long history now, and 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 its prehistory goes back even longer. Uh, but basically, the point of Icebridge and the reason it's called Icebridge is to bridge the gap uh, between NASA's uh, ISAT one spacecraft and ISAT two spacecraft. Now, ISAT one operated from two thousand and three uh, until it uh, failed in two thousand and nine, uh, and ISAT two will not be launched until currently scheduled for the fall of twenty eighteen. Okay, uh, and so that left a, a nine year gap uh, between the two spacecraft. So NASA's uh, goal was to bridge that gap with airborne observations because NASA did not want to uh, to be caught with without detailed observations of polar ice uh, in that nine-year interim there. So the ISAT, the satellite, what exactly was it doing? Uh, so it was an altimetry satellite. And what that means is it was uh, its fundamental measurement was measuring uh, topography of the ice sheets. Uh, and if you can if you can measure the topography an ice sheet uh, topography of an ice sheet, you can go back later and measure that same topography again and to see how it changed. And, and so fundamentally, what it was about was about measuring the changing volume of polar ice, both both in the north and in the south. How many seasons have you been involved with Operation Icebridge? 
Uh, I've been involved with Operation, Operation Iceberg since the very beginning in uh, the spring of 2009. And uh, really, it, we've had predecessor operations to Iceberg going back all the way to 1993. And that's, uh, that's when I first uh, got involved with NASA. It involves different aircraft operating at different times of the year over both Greenland and Antarctica. Yes, that's correct. Okay. And you seem to operate in the spring of both hemispheres. Is that correct? There's obviously some rationale for that. Yeah, that's right. There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, we'd like to go in the uh, in the polar springtime uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that the, the the sea ice is at its maximum extent in the north and the uh, in the uh, in the northern spring, and also in the south and the southern spring. Uh, and we want to we, we generally want to measure it at its maximum thickness and also uh, aerial extent. Um, and another reason we like to do it is because uh, in addition to looking at the changing volume of the ice, we also like to look at the uh, internal structure of the ice and also the the, uh, the thickness of the ice and the shape of the bedrock underneath the ice. Uh, and the best time to do that is when the ice is at its coldest and driest. Okay. Uh, and that happens, uh, it just so happens that that works out to, uh, to be in the, uh, in the coldest part of the year in the, in the early springtime. Prior to Operation Icebridge beginning in the, in the formal sense back in 2008, 2009. 2009. Yep. Um, I guess in that, well, that's now um, eight years ago. How much how much has the gap been filled that we didn't know in terms of the the topography, the ice sheet, the bedrock, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, part, part of the question goes to what you can do with a spacecraft versus what you can do with an aircraft. Mm-hmm. And the answer is you can't do the same things. Uh, they both have their place. They both have their strengths and they both have their weaknesses. Uh, in terms of in terms of the north, the Arctic, uh, I think we've filled the gap quite well with Icebridge. And that's because the north is basically more accessible than the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have we have a number of places in the um, in the northern hemisphere, the far north in the Arctic, where we can base a long-range aircraft to collect the measurements that otherwise would have been collected by uh, by the ISAT spacecraft. So in, the ter- in terms of the Arctic, I think we've bridged the gap quite well. Uh, that turns out to be a much harder proposition, proposition in the Antarctic, uh, simply because the place is just so much more remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many, there are far fewer places to base an aircraft, particularly a wheeled, a large wheeled aircraft with long range in the south. Uh, and so that, that has indeed left us with, uh, with less knowledge of what's going on in, in Antarctica than we would like. Uh, having said that, we, uh, we've, we've, we've based, we have based some very large, very long-range airplanes uh, in the south. We have covered large amounts of uh, Antarctic land ice, particularly in the West Antarctic and also Antarctic sea ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while, we, while we'd like to have more, we've gotten quite a bit. And, and also you can do things, a lot of things with airplanes that you cannot do with spacecraft. Uh, and, and an example of that is, is the radar work that we can uh, use to measure the internal structure of the ice and also the shape of the bedrock. Currently, uh, technology does not allow us to do that from orbit, but we can do it from an aircraft. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, we're able to do some things with the aircraft that we can't do from space, and uh, the, the reverse is true as well. The great maps you see today, which give very good indications of the level of the bedrock underneath the ice sheets in Antarctica, John, that's uh, data that we would have got from ISAT, or they predate ISAT. How long have we had that sort of information? Yeah, so ISAT actually was not able to collect that information. Uh, ISAT was about uh, measuring the changing volume of the ice sheets, but it was not able to peer underneath the surface of the ice sheets to tell us where the bedrock was. So uh, there are a number of ways of gathering that data. Probably the oldest way is seismics, where you, uh, you set off 
uh, literally set off a small explosive charge on the surface of the ice sheet, and you time um, you, you time the amount of time that, that, that elapses until the echo comes back from the bounce off the bedrock. Right. Uh, that's 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 fairly old style, a classical way you might you might consider of measuring um, the thickness of an ice, ice sheet in the position of the bedrock. Nowadays, uh, it's more often done by airborne or uh, or um, or uh, towed uh, radar. It's okay. a low frequency radar that. Um, that uh, basically bounces a, a low-frequency radio wave, uh, starts it from the aircraft or from a sled being towed on the ground, uh, and that bounces off the bedrock uh, and then comes back up and, bounce, and comes back up to the radar receiver. Um, and you can use that to determine um, again not only the shape of the bedrock and the, th- and the thickness of the ice, but also the internal structure of the ice. That's been possible since roughly the early 1990s. Uh, and the technology is improving literally every year. Incidentally, how accurate uh, are those maps that we have of the Antarctic bedrock? Is there is there anything that we – are there any areas that we don't know or, or we've pretty much covered the continent now as far as that's concerned? Uh, yeah, there, there are lots of gaps in those maps. The the, the current best one is called the, the, the Bedmap 2 uh, archive, and that's uh, a number of my colleagues and friends have participated in the, in the construction of Bedmap 2, and that uses data from many sources, including Operation Icebridge. It's currently the best product available. Uh, but you have to consider that even, even in 2017, in this day and age, there are, there are many parts of the earth that we simply don't know that much about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, um, the underside of the Antarctic ice sheet is, is, is really is near the top of that list. Sure. Uh, there's, there's a lot more we'd, we'd like to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're difficult measurements to get, uh, and we're we're doing our best to get them. But uh, there's a long way to go. Yeah, sure. There's a variety of aircraft you have been using for Operation Icebridge. Yeah, do you want to tell us a bit about the different aircraft that you use? Yeah, so we, we do use a number of different aircraft for Icebridge. I, I've actually lost count. I think the number is somewhere in the half dozen range. Uh, two workhorse aircraft that we use primarily are uh, the P3 aircraft. It's a it's a former Cold War submarine hunting aircraft from the United States Navy uh, that's been converted by NASA to use uh, to use for uh, for many purposes actually but ice mapping is sort of one of its one of its main missions these days mm-hmm. uh, it's it's good for that because it's uh, it, it was designed to uh, fly over very long distances and work at low altitude and that's exactly the way we like to map ice uh, long distances low altitude yep uh, so it's a, it's a terrific uh, terrific platform for that and another kind of neat thing about the p3 is that uh, in a swords to plowshares kind of a way uh, is it's got this unusual feature for an aircraft it's got this uh, a tail boom it looks, it looks like a stinger on an insect. Mm-hmm. And um, when when the Navy built the airplane, that tail boom's purpose was to hold a magnetometer, uh, a very sensitive magnetic instrument, uh, and it was on the boom to get it away from the uh, the magnetic influence of the aircraft structure itself. Mm-hmm. The Navy used them to find submarines that you would you could actually locate a Soviet submarine uh, submerged by its uh, effect on the magnetic field of the Earth, and that magnetometer would detect that. Well, these days we use a very similar instrument. It's a magnetometer mounted in the same place, mm-hmm. uh, but but now we use it to measure the uh, subglacial um, properties of bedrock. So it's a sort of a classic sor- uh, swords to plowshares kind of a thing that's kind of neat. The most recent southern uh, season, so 2016-2017, what was the aircraft you were using out of Punta Arenas? Yeah? Right. So that was our other workhorse aircraft. That was the DC-8, which is based uh, at, uh, at uh, Dryden uh, Flight Research Center in Southern California on the desert. Uh, it is also has turned out to be a, a really fantastic platform for us. It's got an even longer range than the P-3. 
Also, also quite a classic, quite quite a dated aircraft now, isn't it? The DC eight. It is. Yeah, it is dated. But boy, I tell you, so sometimes the oldies are the goodies. And sure. in, in the case of the the DC eight and the P three both, they were they're built like tanks, uh, which makes them ideal for airborne science because you can modify them. Yeah. Uh, modern aircraft are built right up to the to the to the edge of you know what they need to do because they can fly very efficiently that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago when these airplanes were built, um, the design more were, were a bit uh, a bit looser, you might say. They, they built them tougher than they needed to be. I guess is another way to put it, and that makes them ideal for doing uh, for doing airborne science. So, what's the range of the DC eight when you're flying out of Punta Arenas and you're flying south into what West Antarctica? Mm-hmm. How many hours can you be in the air? How far can you go, etc. Yeah, we fly a, a typical mission from Punta Arenas over Antarctica with the DC eight uh, covers about eleven to twelve hours, uh, and it covers uh, anywhere up to four thousand uh, nautical miles. Okay, so it's a, it's a lot of the it's a lot of the Earth that you're covering one flight for sure. And uh, another another interesting thing about that is that we take the same airplane out. And we'll do that six even seven days in a row, uh, and some of that with the same people. On board, so uh, right. so people are, are really working like crazy to to, to make this happen, and um, and it works. <laughs> sure. How, how many? So how many people have you got working on the plane for those twelve hour flights? Yeah, so for uh, it, it differs somewhat by aircraft. For for the DC-8 out of Punta Arenas for Antarctica, we typically have a crew of about uh, twenty five to thirty people on board. Okay. And some of those some of those folks are operating the aircraft itself. Some of them are are are, are doing safety work. Um, uh, other and, and of course many others are operating the, the science instruments in the back, or or like myself helping to uh, to manage the mission and uh, make it uh, as efficient as it can be. Yeah. So your so your role on those flights, John, you're sort of you're keeping track of the where the plane's going, directing the pilot. Is that the sort of thing you're doing? Yeah, that's part of it. Um, uh, precision navigation is part of what we do, and that's uh, it's it's a very unique thing. I, I want know of one other operation even at NASA that does anything like this but a typical airplane you doesn't care all that much uh, that that if it's you know if it's uh, it, it wants to get from point A to point B and if it's a little off that direct path between points A and B it doesn't really matter all that much but for us it matters a great deal because we want to measure very specific points on the surface of the ice uh, for any number of reasons um, so for that, we had to invent a technology that keeps the airplane directly, and I mean within literally just a few feet, uh, a meter or two of, of the path that we wanted to be on. So uh, my colleagues and I uh, basically invented a way to do that, um, mm-hmm. and, and we still maintain it. And it's one of my jobs is to run that, uh, run that system in flight. Uh, we can actually couple the, uh, the, airpl- the aircraft's autopilot to the computers in our science racks in the back and actually steer the airplane that way. And it can steer, we can steer it far more accurately than it can steer itself. Um, so that's part of what I do. I also mm-hmm. help to sort of core, I think of it as a sort of a choreographer role where you make sure the, the flight crew, uh, the instrument operators, uh, everybody on board is kind of on the same page uh, mm-hmm. and, and working to the same script so that we're measuring the things that, that we want to measure. Sure. And as, as the flight unfolds, you're seeing information and reading information in real time uh, or are you just simply collecting the data and, and, and the data is handed over once you land did, 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 or is it a bit of both? Yeah, that's a great question. It's the the answer is a lot of both. Uh, so, the the goal is basically to to do the latter. So uh, to to get the best quality measurements of of what's going on on the surface of the ice, uh, at the bottom of the ice, and everywhere in between. It generally takes us about six months uh, from the time we land on any given day to get that data out to the to the larger science community, fully calibrated in engineering units that everyone can understand and as accurate as it can be. Uh, and so that's fundamentally what we're trying to do. But in order 
order to get to that point, we have to have a lot of real-time knowledge of how the instruments and how the aircraft are doing uh, at, at the time we're flying the mission. Okay. And so the job of the instrument operators is to, uh, is to monitor all that, uh, make adjustments as needed, make repairs as needed, uh, as occasionally happens, uh, something will break, uh, and make sure we keep collecting data. Okay. So notwithstanding what you just said, have there been any any wow moments in, in, in the middle of a flight when you know you're reading some information that you didn't expect has that ever happened or, or has it been a has it been a sort of on the whole it's a no surprises sort of experience uh, those during those flights oh yeah there are there are moments like that uh, I remember flying over the flank of uh, Mount Takahe uh, which is in West Antarctica just this last fall it's an, it's a it's a volcano mm-hmm. uh, whether it's extinct or not I'm not sure we need to talk to a volcanologist about that but it's this beautiful uh, conical shaped mountain uh, kind of sticking out of the ice sheet there in West Antarctica and uh, I was I happened to be watching the um, the, the depth sounding radar uh, which again it not only tells us where the bedrock is but it tells us a lot about the internal structure of the ice mm-hmm. and we were getting very very strong reflections. Um, I think it was around 200 meters down into the into the ice, uh, mm-hmm. and, and actually several of them, so some deeper than that. Uh, that uh, very strong reflecting layers within the ice, and we uh, we were surmising that they were ash layers from from uh, previous uh, eruptions of the volcano. Okay. So. That was something we we could see in real time. That was pretty neat. Uh, yeah, occasionally you do see things in real time that, that, that are neat. But the biggest discoveries, the most important ones, um, the most lasting ones, are almost always the ones that you find uh, that, that you find when you when you process the data, when you put it all together, and, and that takes uh, that takes months or sometimes even a couple of years for that to come out. Sure. And in terms of the, the eight years or so that Operation Icebridge has been in operation, the topography, the our knowledge of the topography, the ice sheet has improved dramatically would you say oh absolutely and and uh, the, the both the topography and the topo- of the ice sheet and the topography of the bedrock uh, beneath it particularly has improved and I can give you an example of that um, we uh, recently a colleague of ours in in the UK named Jonathan Bamber published a paper that described uh, a feature that was totally unknown under Greenland uh, prior to the publication of that paper and what he described was a feature that's uh, on the scale of the Grand Canyon of the of the western United States and it is indeed a canyon in the bedrock that's buried under the ice that's roughly the same depth, uh, which is about a mile, uh, about a statute mile, and several hundred miles long. Again, that's the same scale as the Grand Canyon in the western U.S. It's, that's at, in the bedrock of the Greenland Ice Sheet. Wow. It's been totally buried under ice all this time, so mankind has not known about it prior to literally just a couple of years ago. Wow. When you think about that, it's such a massive feature that was totally unknown prior to you know just a couple of years ago. That's why we do science. That, that's why it's interesting. That's why it's such a rewarding um, to feel to make a discovery. Uh, to make a discovery like that. Sure. And in the brief period, if you like, that you have been flying over the ice sheets, particularly, let's say, talk about Antarctica, has there been any change in the height of the ice sheet, the, the surface of the ice sheet, that has been discernible but you know, from one season to another or, or over the ice bridge period? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, the uh, the instruments we make, particularly the uh, the lidars that, that measure the in great detail and great accuracy the surface of the ice, uh, they can detect just a few centimeters of change from year to year. Okay, and and there are places around the the periphery of Antarctica that change by a few meters per year. Okay, so that's easily noticeable, uh, easily measurable signal given our instrumentation, and we do see that around the active parts of uh, particularly West Antarctica. Sure. Okay. 
Do we have any idea why that's happening, by the way, John? Well, uh, yeah, we have some idea. Well, I guess one of the big stories that's 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 come out in the last ten or fifteen years, uh, and this is valid both in the North and in the South of the Earth, uh, the Earth's ice, and that's the uh, the uh, the great influence the oceans have on the ice sheets and the glaciers that that, that drain them. Uh, if you have a warming ocean, it's going to eat away at those glaciers, uh, and that's going to further draw down the inter- the interior of the ice sheet. Uh, a very obvious example of that. Uh, is Jakobshavn Glacier in western Greenland, mm-hmm. uh, and also increasingly now the the, uh, the Zachariah Glacier in north northeastern Greenland, mm-hmm. and in Antarctica, a good example of that is, is are the Thwaites and the Pine Island glaciers in, in West Antarctica, where they uh, where uh, we believe the ocean waters have been warming up and and basically um, basically undermining those glaciers uh, from beneath. You take some photos uh, during the flight because we saw a stunning photo that you took of the rift, the growing rift on the Larsen Sea ice shelf. Do you want to tell us a bit about taking that photograph? Oh, yeah. Thanks for the compliment. Uh, yeah, that was a fun one. We uh, So we didn't discover that rift, of course. That was found in satellite imagery by some of our, uh, our colleagues uh, a few, oh gosh, weeks, I guess it was months really, prior to the time we flew it. So we knew it was there. And not only did we know it was there, we knew roughly where it was. So we had a, I had a map in my hand that um, that basically clued me in into, as to when we were going to be going to be flying over it. So I had my camera ready to go, mm-hmm. and uh, some of the windows in the DC-8 that we were flying are better for for photography than others. And so I was able to find one of the better windows and sort of stake myself out in front of it when I knew that uh, the rift was coming. And sure enough, um, it was where we thought it was going to be, and uh, and we got to fly right over it. And I snapped a, snapped a, away a, a whole lot of shots. And uh, the one that you're referring to is the one that uh, the one that I felt was the best, and uh, the one that made it out of into the public domain. So yeah, I'm pretty, pretty excited about that. Can I ask just from a photographer's point of view, John, what sort of camera did you, did you use to take that photo? I think, I think you might be disappointed in the answer, but the, <laughs> what I used was just a, a consumer grade, uh, uh, Canon T5i, the okay. pr- pretty basic camera. Okay. Oh, very good. The height of the rift at that point, do you have any idea of the scale? Yeah, the, off the top of my head, the, the depth of it was probably 50 or 60 meters. Okay. Um, and the width of it, uh, would have to look that up. It's probably somewhat more than that, but I'm, uh, I'm, I don't recall off the top of my head. And so uh, Operation Ice Bridge, at the moment, it's not too many more seasons to go? Well, uh, yeah, so the, where we end is, is still somewhat under discussion. Uh, we certainly want to have some overlap between the launch of the ISAT-2 spacecraft and the end of Ice Bridge because... Um, we want to have to make sure we have continuity of the measurements that we understand the measurements uh, that IceBridge made relative to uh, relative to IceSat two mm-hmm. uh, that we understand the, the accuracy of both and how they relate to each other. So that's going to require some overlap at least six months. Mm-hmm. So um, we we probably have about another uh, about another uh, year and a half, possibly two years to go in IceBridge, uh, and we'll we'll see what happens after that. Okay, fantastic. All right, look, John, that's been very very interesting. We appreciate your time today on the Antarctic Report. My pleasure. Thanks for calling. That was John Sontag, mission scientist for NASA's Operation Icebridge. If you'd like to know more about Operation Icebridge, check out the episode notes on AntarcticReport.com, where you'll find more weekly episodes of the Antarctic Report podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or comment, email us at info at AntarcticReport.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Antarctic Report. If you like what we do, you can review the podcast on iTunes. You'll be helping others to find us. Thanks for listening to the Antarctic Report podcast. See you next time.